Hello, and welcome to Legally Bond, a podcast presented by the law firm Bond, Chenick & King. I'm your host, Kim Wolf-Price. In this episode, we will focus on issues facing higher education, and we're lucky enough to have two members of the Bond Higher Education Law Practice Group joining us today, Monica Barrett from the New York City office and Pete Jones from our Syracuse office. Welcome back to the podcast, Pete. And you too, Monica, because your Torchbearer Spotlight was also part of the episodes. It's good to have you in this format. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Kim. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah. I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you both. And it's nice to have you here where we can share this information with the listeners. So Monica is a member in our New York City office focusing on higher education. And Pete is a member in our Syracuse office with a good part of his labor practice focusing on higher education as well. And both hold significant leadership roles within Bond. I'd like to start with just a quick intro of each of you, if you're okay with that. I think listeners appreciate knowing a bit about who is talking to them. So Monica, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, school, family, what you did before Bond? Thanks, Kim. And sure, it's it's great to be invited to do a podcast with Pete. And I grew up in Jamesville, New York, which is right outside of Syracuse. For college, I went to Wellesley. And then three years after college, I went to University of Michigan Law School. For many years, I worked as an in-house lawyer for a college or a university first at Cornell University, then at Barnard College, and finally for 19 years at Rutgers. And six years ago, I joined the New York City office of Bond, and I've been at Bond ever since. And my wife and I live in Brooklyn, New York, and we have two adult sons. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. And I know that you cheer Rutgers basketball on. (laughs) <laughs> the of the but but I think they just lost. So oh, they did. <laughs> oh. It's kind of been happening a lot um, yes. over this time period. Yes. Well, thanks so much, Monica. Thank you for that. Um, and Pete, if I can ask you the same things, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from, went to school, your family, and, and your career here at Bond? Sure, absolutely. First of all, I'd like to echo what Monica said. It's great to be here with with you and Monica today. And I have to say, I just learned something. I knew Monica was from the Syracuse area, but I didn't know it was Jamesville. So we're making connections here, uh, even as we speak. I I actually grew up not too far from here as well in in Auburn. And then um, I did my undergraduate work at the ILR school at Cornell. That's how I got into labor law. And I went to the University of Pennsylvania for law school. I think my professional career is a little less interesting than Monica's because I've been at Bond ever since. I've got a a wonderful wife and three great kids. I was thinking about it today. One's in grad school, one's a senior in college, and one's a senior in high school. So I've got all the educational levels covered here. That's great. And you and I get to talk about high school sports in the rain this past fall. Both of we both had kids who were in like big games and you had the worst rainy day. I think of them all. So it was pretty bad. I uh, <laughs> and then the like one a.m. after yeah, that. I yeah, think, right. And then the lights went out for about an hour, so that was fun yes. too. Yeah, exactly. Well, I appreciate both of you giving us that little bit of background, and of course, joining us today because I know how busy you both are. Well, um, as someone who spent part of my career in higher ed, but on the client side, you know, not in general counsel's office, but as someone who worked at a law school and saw what happened. I may have had times where my boss would say, I don't know, call Pete Jones. Literally a direct quote. Um, but um, we have so many topics we can cover because, I, you know, your work is interesting. And of course, I find it interesting, but we really try to keep these episodes to a reasonable length. So we're going to have to pick just a few for today. 
and have you both back. Of course, you both can comment and chime in on the other's topics I pose to the other person as well. But I I think I should start with this. I, I try to always do that. We like to define terms. Monica, what does the higher ed practice group do? What type of lawyers do that work? That's that's a good question in terms of the fact that I'm on with Pete right now. When I was at Cornell as a lawyer, he may have been an undergrad at the ILR school when the students at Cornell actually took over Day Hall on the campus. And so we deal with a lot of action on campus, like student protests giving uh, advice, especially advice to colleges that don't have big in-house counsel offices like Rutgers had, but advice on how do you deal with student protests when they take over a campus? How do you deal with law enforcement in in any situation that involves crime on campus? Faculty issues, union negotiations, graduate student issues, graduate students who want to join unions issues. And athletics. Athletics is, I I have heard tell that athletics crisis can bring a president down. So there's a lot of issues that we deal with on athletics on campus. Yeah, it's, it's, they're small cities, (laughs) really, with so many different operating and moving pieces at any given time. So Pete, the, the last couple of years, you know, we know COVID has kept everyone busy on these issues. But even before COVID, there were a lot of protests on campuses, a lot of issues. It's been a pretty intense time for those running college campuses these last few years, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. And I I think it's gotten more complicated over the years. I, I think Monica would probably agree with that, that, you know, the issues are more varied. As you say, Kim, campuses are small cities and there's an awful lot going on. Um, there's a lot of things to keep track of that that means compliance issues. It means a lot of different regulations to deal with a lot of different constituencies. And then COVID's exacerbated that complexity for all of us in, in all walks of life. But certainly on college campuses, there are a lot of issues associated with you know, keeping the population safe, keeping the education going, right. you know, different modalities, you know, the accommodation of people who may have medical uh, needs or religious uh, concerns about vaccines and and, and things of that nature. So there's been a lot, there's really been a lot to keep track of. We've tried to help with that with our group. We've got a um, general counsel's corner piece that we do periodically. We've done a lot of webinars and updates, you know, and the firm generally has done this uh, weekly webinar. It started off being focused exclusively on COVID. It's every Tuesday at noon, but we've morphed now into some more general topics as well. Uh, We've got a nice group of folks who join us every Tuesday. And so, uh, you know, we're talking about whatever's time. And I think that helps really all of our clients, but there, there is quite a bit of focus on the, you know, the higher ed issues in that webinar as well. And one thing I wanted to add is that, I mean, I find that Uh, A majority of issues in higher ed are employment related issues. And so we have a a very bond has a very strong labor and employment, the practice group, and it's well known throughout the state. So that the labor department and the higher ed group work hand in hand. We're, We're members, higher ed attorneys are members of the labor group and vice versa. So it works very well. And, and the other issue about higher ed is that, On college campuses, it's probably the most progressive 
type of employment environment. So issues that come up on a college campus don't really come up in the regular employment world until years later. So it's, it's, I think it's, it keeps us on our game, so to speak. I could see that because I spent a dozen years never having to ask for permission to see any website I might want to be on, which is makes certain parts of tracking college and university work, I'm sure, very, very different. So there is that whole academic freedom piece that comes with that environment as well. Well, I, I, we talked about a lot of topics possibly as we got ready for this. I would like to do another issue with one or both of you focusing on the student protest issues critical race theory, maybe gender equity in athletics, and dive into faculty pay equity. So I hope we can do that. Does that sound okay? That's great. All right, great. All right. Well, Pete, um, you did a special episode for us. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to focus today on a couple of NLRB issues. That's the National Labor Relations Board for our listeners that are impacting college campuses. And those are um, the graduate student organizing and an update on the student athlete issue that you brought to us in that special episode. Does that work? Sure, absolutely. All right, great. And Monica, an issue that maybe not everyone is even aware of is this issue of um, potential mergers of small colleges. And that issue, along with giving some insights into the affirmative action case the U.S. Supreme Court will hear this summer, those are issues I'd like to direct to you first, but either of you can comment. So does that work? Sure. Thank you. All right, great. All right. So I'm going to first pose the question to one of you. I hope the other will join in if you see fit. And while our time may only be able to skim these, I think that these are things listeners will find interesting and want to hear more about. Of course, everyone knows how to hear more about it. And that's to contact the person speaking about it. But I think you've all figured that out. All right. So Pete, a few months ago, we talked about NLRB General Counsel Abruzzo's memo regarding certain students who play sports. I have to like train myself to say that, of course, right? It's coming from a big college campus. Certain students who play sports. This memo for enforcement purposes takes certain players from the solely student category and puts them in an employee category as people covered by the NLRB Act. Is that right? Well, I'm going to adjust it just slightly Perfect. Uh, in this regard. I mean, first of all, it, we're talking about an interpretive guidance, an enforcement document from the general counsel. So that is certainly her suggestion. And so it's fair in that regard, but it is not yet officially the law because the NLRB has not heard a case or made that pronouncement. I think, it, so, that, so that's probably the first thing of note, you know, is that is um, what that is. It's, uh, it's an enforcement position. It was notable, probably both because, you know, college sports is of interest to a lot of people. It's just kind of an interesting topic. Um, But also, I think, because it's, you know, it's been brewing for years. And, um, you know, there was a prior case where the board, in essence, declined to exercise jurisdiction over college athletes on the theory that, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't in the best interest. It wasn't the best use of resources under the act. And so by declining to exercise jurisdiction, they, in essence, didn't really take it up. They didn't say they didn't have jurisdiction. And some of the complexity there, I think, relates to the fact that the National Labor Relations Act only regulates private sector employers. And many of the large institutions uh, that dominate college athletics are public institutions. And so the board was kind of grappling with this notion of, 
can we exercise jurisdiction over a fraction of the folks who might be um, right. engaged in you know this this high level college sports? So the general counsel has has I guess basically said we very much are encouraging that, and I will process those kinds of claims. And I think she's sending a signal to anyone who's listening, including the NLRB itself, that you know it's her belief that they ought to exercise jurisdiction and that they ought to find that certain players at academic institutions are in fact employees and, and therefore afforded all the, all the protections of the act. I mean, two real quick things though to note there, because I noticed how careful you were with your words that the certain players at academic institutions, the general counsel has said that the term student athlete, which is very commonly used, has historically bad connotations and might even serve uh, as the basis for an independent charge under the National Labor Relations Act, that the putative employer, in this case, the college or the college athletic right. program, is trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the individuals and pretend that they're not employees when she, in fact, believes that they are. So that term now has, at least in the general counsel's view, uh, a potential to create liability in and of itself, which is a fairly remarkable proposition. Because it's such a common phrase. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what when we look at inter, when we look at resumes for lo- new lawyers, we look. Oh, this person was a student at like we we use it all the time. Well, it's also descriptive. I mean, they're students and they're athletes. But the general counsel did cite in her memo uh, a line of thinking that that term was originally created, in fact, to mislead and therefore is is unfair in her view. So. I think about conferences. If you have, if you're an athletic conference and you have public schools and private schools in the same conference, I mean, there could be some real complicated outside of them, just the university itself expanding out into the conferences and potentially even the NCAA. There could be other pieces that make it a little complicated for everybody to be on the same playing field, not excuse the pun. And and I think that's exactly right. The next thing that is notable about this is that she did comment on the possibility of joint employer responsibility for the NCAA and the conferences. And in fact, since the memo came out in September, we now have a charge that's been filed naming UCLA, Pac-12 Conference, and the National Collegiate Athletic Association. You know, I think it's a test case, and, and you know, to, to see whether or not this kind of a theory would uh, hold any water. Because UCLA is a public institution and the conference has both publics and privates. And so I guess, um, you know, we're on to the next phase here, at least in terms of uh, litigation. So it's interesting that it's California because so many of the cases and other aspects of collegiate sports have been in California. So that'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But so what are some, should campuses be doing something? Are there things that colleges or universities should be doing now to sort of prepare for this or because this memo came out? Well, I mean, I think everyone's probably should be doing their own risk assessment here. And it, it also would depend on what sort of institution you are. What, what level of athletics uh, do you participate in? You know, our UNA Power Five conference where, you know, the revenues from, you know, football and, and oftentimes basketball are very high. But reviewing your materials, and deciding whether or not you are going to change how you refer to the athletes is 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 one thing. The general counsel's memo made quite a bit of commentary on 
retaliatory action if they're employees and if they are retaliated against for having engaged in protected concerted activity, that too would violate the National Labor Relations Act. And so some thought should probably be given to whether or not it's you want to do some training. Um, I think we generally think of retaliation as not being a good thing anyway. So if we if we ended up with a with a training module that talked about how to treat people fairly and without retaliation based upon any of their you know, protected activity or their oppositional activity, you might be able to avoid that amount of liability in the first instance, regardless of whether they're employees or not, because you would always be acting for legitimate non-discriminatory reasons. So there's a, there's a few things you might think about. And obviously, I think following this very carefully is probably another thing. Um, there's a lot that's uh, yet to be written here. Um, we're, we're early days, I think, in terms of uh, this issue. And that you said there's a test case, but it's always possible that more will pop up along the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Pete. I, it's That's been a, since I read your info memo and we did that special episode, it's something that like every once in a while I'll, I'll read an article and I'll think, how is that going to play out? So um, I'm going to, may need you to come back again on this topic. I think it's timely with March Madness. And I mean, this is the time of year when people start thinking about the, the revenue and the, the right. high profile, at least of certain, you know, certain college sports. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so Monica, I think listeners would assume this issue of certain students who play sports is focused on bigger schools or at least schools with well-known athletic programs. I know for some of the smaller campuses who may not be dealing with that, there are also issues right now that are pretty practical that are causing some to look at mergers, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. And I think even before the pandemic, there were a lot of our clients who are small liberal arts colleges are dealing with the declining enrollment and many of them are tuition driven. So they're competing among themselves for students to, to enroll. So we have been talking to, we have several clients who are thinking about merging with another school that's geographically near them or has the same mission that they do. For example, if it's a Catholic college, they may look to another Catholic college to merge with. And we do a lot of work with our clients on uh, going through the due diligence of how to how to figure out what's the best partner for a merger, or even if it's not a merger, then can you get into a situation where you're sharing services? And right. there, there is a consortium of colleges in Minnesota that actually share different key senior leadership. So they like this. Senior VP for facilities may work at two different campuses. So that's a way for a a combination of shared services and not quite a merger would happen. But we we have a strong group at Bond, group of attorneys that help with that kind of consideration. And a lot of times it's a consideration run through the thought process, but then it stops in its tracks. Yes. Other times it actually succeeds. So uh, those are the types of issues that many of our clients are going through these days, especially after the pandemic. Yeah. And so as someone who, as I mentioned, worked on a campus, 
was probably likely more of these certain students who play sports issue. But I attended a small liberal arts university. And I know that in both places, alumni have strong feelings, I'm sure, on these issues. And I think overall in higher ed, that's another piece probably of almost every decision <laughs> that you know administrators have to make. But you know, how does that play into these type of potential pivots that some campuses may be making, the, the, the alumni piece? Well, that, that, that's a very good question because in, in several situations that have come up in the past couple of years, the, the alumni organization and several members of a board of trustees may have gathered a, a group together to try to stop the merger. And in doing so, they have been able to raise money to keep the institution running for a couple of years. But a lot of people who have that kind of opposition to a merger don't have the long-term view of, you know, what happens after the money you've raised runs out. So, so it is a very politically sensitive issue and we have dealt with situations like that. So there, there are ways to work through it and, you know, be transparent about what's going on when possible. But it, it's definitely uh, difficult for many campuses to get into that consideration of that possibility and then deal with all of the issues that come up along the way. And you said early, you know, tuition driven. And I think maybe for our listeners, that means that the tuition that comes in is the budget they have. There's not an endowment that people can sort of dip into or other revenue streams. Is that really sort of the very basic way to look at that? Yeah, that, that is a basic way to look at it. And I and what happened at the beginning of the pandemic when all of our higher ed clients had to go online, there are a number of cases that were brought where, where students sued the university for return of some of their tuition because they weren't getting the same mode of uh, classroom education. But because the tuition dollars pay the faculty and the faculty are still working, there's an issue. Yeah. So where do you get the money from to return tuition dollars to the students? So it's, it's tuition driven means that all of the money is used up by the operations of the university, including paying the faculty. Right. And keeping everything sort of going forward. And the bottom line is the product you get is still that piece of paper at the end. That's right. Exactly. So that's where it gets a little tricky there. So you mentioned that this was actually going on before the pandemic. Has this intensified a bit, as you were saying, because of those lawsuits, because of student expectations? Are we seeing this murder talk intensifying a bit? Yes, we are seeing the talk intensify a bit. And It's not very public. So, you know, because of the issues that these small colleges run into with pushback from alums or board members. So obviously critical board members may be talking about it with the uh, chief executives of the institutions. So it's it's usually on a very confidential basis. And and then it's a it's a road that we can help guide clients through. That's great. And, you know, Pete, I was, as Monica says, it's a a road we can help guide clients through. It seems to me that being a full service law firm, having these other traditional business deal lawyers, intellectual property and other aspects would be kind of helpful in these situations because it all can come into play. (laughs) 
I, you know, I think that's right. I mean, I've been involved in some of these potential combinations or mergers. And, you know, there's often a question of, okay, how do we integrate the employees? So that's right up my alley with the employment aspects. Yes. And especially when you're talking about two different groups of tenured and wherever there's tenured, there's also untenured faculty, right? right? The folks who are, <laughs> you know, not tenured yet. And so that that can be complicated, especially if they have different rules and different processes and things of that nature. Sometimes different collective bargaining agreements, two different groups of, you know, represented employees. But as Monica says, you know, sometimes there's a go, no go decision and it, it, it doesn't happen and the people are being proactive. It didn't happen because there was some financial analysis and we have people who help with that. There are, you know, what can we do with these assets? Are they encumbered? What happens when the beneficial purpose is no longer, can no longer be uh, met because the institution for which the gift was given is, Speaking is that, yes. officially that, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you need a team of people with different expertise. And I think we're, we're very happy that we have that. But it's this is one of those areas where you, you need good judgment, but you also need people who've got well-rounded expertise, I think. Yeah, a little bit of a deep bench probably helps here. You know, and on the labor union front, I, I was at Rutgers when Rutgers merged with the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. Oh, yeah. And so Rutgers, before the merger, had 12 labor unions. And after the merger, Rutgers had 27 different labor unions. So That is a significant increase. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So well, that's a, and that's a perfect segue into the the next topic for Pete here. This is back to a, a labor issue and one that any campus with graduate students, I think, could face, and that's graduate student organizing on campus. Can you first give us a little bit of an explanation of of what that means, graduate student organizing on campus? Sure. So again, you know, if we're sort of back to that core issue of. Uh, the National Labor Relations Act, it's now well established that the National Labor Relations Act does apply to not-for-profit higher education institutions. And what that means is that, you know, the the employees at those institutions may be eligible to organize. There's some unique issues in higher ed because uh, managers are not able to organize and faculty in many cases look like managers. And so there's a whole line of cases that, um, you know, that address that starting with Yeshiva University. But there's also been a historical debate and, and quite a bit of back and forth about whether or not graduate students who perform some services, such as uh, teaching assistants or research assistants or things of that nature, are employees and eligible to organize or not. And in this, by definition here, we're talking about, well, they're students, so we know they're students, but the real question is whether they have employment status such that they could organize. And again, this is one of the issues that is driven in part by differences between institutions and how they're organized academically, you know, that some large research universities use a fair number of graduate assistants. That's fair, Uh, yes. Yeah. And in and, and, and smaller liberal arts colleges, perhaps not so much. In any event, there has been a, a long history here. It goes all the way back to Stanford University in 1974. There was a ruling by the NLRB that graduate students were primarily students and therefore not employees. 
And then that case was really overturned in 2000 by a case involving New York University. That case was overturned again. They went back to the original rule in Brown in 2004. And then in 2014, there was a Columbia University decision that the current state of the law that says that graduate students, and not just graduate students, actually, but even undergraduates who perform services could be statutory employees and eligible to organize. And so during the Trump administration, the board proposed a rule that would say that students, in particular graduate students, are not employees. That rule has now been pulled since the, you know, the Biden administration and the Biden appointees have taken over at the board. And so we're still under the uh, Columbia ruling where they could be employees. That is complicated for these well, I mean, it's everything from who serves the food in the dining hall potentially to who might be teaching a section of a very large lecture class and everything in between. Yeah. And I think it's always, I mean, to me, there's always been this, this notion that there are, there are a lot of employees in higher ed who, you know, fall within fairly heavily unionized job classifications. Like yeah. you say, I mean, you know, perhaps the, 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 the food service or the, you know, the, the housing folks, residential life, right. you know, grounds, um, all that. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and then you've got faculty, which is a very different animal, not, a, not as analogous. And you've got this question of whether they're managers or not, and even eligible to organize, but in any event, they're going to be intimately involved in the, you know, operations of the institution by virtue of what they do. You know, they teach and they design courses and all the rest of it. Right. And so then you've got this, this other group here of people who, you know, do a little bit, they look a little bit like the instructors. They are students. And right. so it's, it's just, it's a very unique situation, not common to other, uh, you know, other employment industries. Well, and the back and forth of it is pretty intense that, you know, it's it's kind of difficult. Campuses can't move that quickly, right? They're Like we said, they're almost like a municipality. So the switch going back and forth like that, it must be difficult for them to sort of, okay, so now we can, now they can't, but maybe they can. That's got to be difficult culturally on a campus. Right. And, and then you've got you know, arguments that are made that, well, even if you don't have to, you should still recognize us or, you know, deal with us as a trade association. So there, there, there is, there are challenges, even with the, the law being clear, but you're right. I mean, and, and this is one of the areas where the board has gone back and forth. That's not uncommon with board doctrine. It happens in a lot of different areas, but this is one that's been particularly pronounced because it's back and forth and back and forth. And they're, they're, in, in recent years, there have been very vigorous dissents, depending on who's, um, uh, you know, the, the majority opinion. There's always been a dissent that argues that, you know, it's wrong and it shouldn't be that way. So, Monica, are some colleges and universities, are they getting, are, are there places getting close to having graduates organized this way and potentially like form a union or be part of one? Yeah, I think recently, I mean, Harvard graduate students voted to form a union, Brown University and Columbia University as well. So it's it's very recent that they've formed, definitely. Yeah. So that, of course, on, on college campuses, you know, that's another thing that administration has to deal with in a variety of different ways. And that's graduate students, as Pete said, potentially this could apply to undergraduates as that's well. That's right. <laughs> 
So, all right, just keeping things very clear. <laughs> um, all right, so many of our listeners, I think, are lawyers or law students. I've heard from some undergrads and pre-law students as well. But I, so there, I think there's other non-lawyer clients or potentially, you know, just my mom who might be listening to the podcast. But I think anyone who listens to a legal podcast wants to know what the Supreme Court is talking about and what they, they might be hearing in the next term. So on the higher ed front, there's a big case about um, race conscious admissions programs, isn't there, Monica? Yes, there is. And it's a, it's a fairly major case that the Supreme Court is going to hear in Oct- hear argument on in October. And it's students for fair admissions versus uh, the president and fellows of Harvard College. And it's an appeal from the First Circuit that covers the Boston area, Cambridge right. area. And uh, the court held in that case that Harvard's admissions policy where they they have a race conscious admissions policy, which is consistent with the existing Supreme Court law, is valid. So Harvard won the case, but now it's going up to the present Supreme Court. And Sarah Luke is one of our higher education colleagues here at Bond. And she and I wrote a piece uh, titled Race Conscious Admissions and the Race to the Supreme Court back in October 2019 about that case. And it's a blog article that we have on our website. And Sarah and I both went to the University of Michigan Law School, which, of course, is the school where Grutter versus Bollinger uh, came out and uh, upheld the University of Michigan's law school race-conscious admissions policy, and that was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. So there's, it's a critical issue for higher ed, and Pete and I belong to the National Association of College and University Attorneys, and our annual conference is always in June, oh. and, it, and I think in June 2023, we're going to be uh, all looking at um, the internet to find out what the U.S. Supreme Court does on this Harvard College case, because it's um, it's a very important case for admissions at all all universities and colleges across the country. Yeah, and it could be a change from the 2016 decision because the court is different. Yes, and 2016 was the Fisher versus University of Texas case, which upheld Texas's um, admissions policy. Which seems so like those, those NACUA conferences must be kind of fun. It's never dull, I'm sure. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And and it's actually, I mean, it is higher ed practice. It's, I think it's a fascinating area of the law. And I was lucky enough to get into it way back in 1990. And it's uh, before I even knew that there were universities that had co- uh, lawyers on campus. So it's a very exciting practice. Yeah. So Pete, our clients must they, they don't wait for the opinion the way you and Monica will be waiting for that opinion to come out, but it could change a lot of the processes. There'll be a lot, could be a lot of work that has to kind of come from that, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Every time, every time there's a significant change in the law, how it's interpreted, that's going to create a, a lot of um, compliance work at the college and university level and, and probably in consultation with, uh, you know, with your attorneys. I, I'm just thinking about 
OCR came out with some new Title IX regulations a few years back, and everyone had to take a look at what they had in place and make some pretty substantial revisions in a lot of cases in a pretty short time frame. So, yeah, I mean, if, if this if people are operating under Fisher and this case, you know, alters that, there may be some scurrying to, yes. you know, to, to change uh, change practices. Yeah, the policies and procedures are sort of the backbone a lot of, of how these colleges and universities operate. So um, it'll be retraining all, a lot of admissions teams potentially. Be interesting. Well, thank you, Monica and Pete. I feel like we you did an excellent job sort of giving us a taste of many things. I know you could talk much more in depth on all of those topics. And I think we have a solid 10 other episodes that we could cover here. So thank you both for your time. I know how busy you both are and for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Good yeah. to talk with you. Good to talk with you too. And I look forward to having you both on the podcast again soon. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Legally Bond. If you're listening and have any questions for me, want to hear from someone at the firm, or have a suggestion for a future topic, please email us at legallybond at bsk.com. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Legally Bond wherever podcasts are downloaded. Until our next talk, be well. Bond, Shenick, and King has prepared this communication to present only general information. This is not intended as legal advice, nor should you consider it as such. You should not act or decline to act based upon the contents. While we try to make sure that the information is complete and accurate, laws can change quickly. You should always formally engage a lawyer of your choosing before taking actions which have legal consequences. For information about our communication, firm, practice areas, and attorneys, visit our website, bsk.com. This is attorney advertising.